Once again, we hear God's word from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The Old Testament lesson from which our sermon comes is found in Exodus chapter 33, verses 1 through 23. That is found on page 73 of your pew Bibles. Once again, the Old Testament lesson is Exodus chapter 33, verses 1 through 23. This too is the word of God. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you. And I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. The Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. As a man speaks to his friend, when Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, Please show me now your ways, that I may know you, in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. 
And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. He said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight and I in your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The word of God so far. Let's pray that God will bless the preaching of it. Heavenly Father, indeed, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. Help us, Lord, to pay attention to your word, to attend upon it. And please convict us of our sins through the preaching of the law and convict us of righteousness in Christ alone. Uh, The faith is a gift from you as we hear the gospel preached. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Congregation of Christ and Friends, let's be very honest about something. The Christian life can be very, very frustrating. While you enjoy all the benefits of salvation, that is justification by grace through faith alone, adoption as sons and daughters, uh, the promise of sanctification, uh, the promise one day to be perfectly glorified, seeing Christ face to face, At the same time, we are weak, sometimes we are wicked, we commit the same sins over and over and over again, and we generally just blow it a lot. We don't do what God has called us to do. There are many parallels with Israel in this chapter. They are, in fact, extremely dismayed at their sin, as they had used the golden calf in their worship of Yahweh. But they are heartened by the mediation of Moses on their behalf, which turns God's favor to them once again. Moses' mediation points to Christ's mediation, which gives the conscience peace. And so the point of the sermon is simply this. The sin of God's people requires Mediation for the assurance of forgiveness, for the peace of a conscience. So first in this passage, you'll see that the people's sin and God's threat against them uh, causes them to uh, repent of their sins. Second, Moses' mediation is used by God for the assurance of the forgiveness of Israel's sin. And third, Christ's mediation points to, uh, or rather Moses' mediation points to Christ's mediation for the forgiveness of your sins. Well, first, the people's sin and God's threat against them drives them to a point of repentance. So Yahweh commands the people to move on to the promised land, but he says, I can't go among you. 
I can't dwell in your presence. Why? They are wretched, terrible sinners. According to chapter 32, because of God's promises and mercy, the people were preserved from total destruction as a nation, even though they had sinned against God by using the golden calf in worship. But they were punished for their sin. Remember, 3,000 people died because they would not repent of their sin. And the rest of the people were uh, ravaged by a plague. And this is why Yahweh says that He will not go up among them, lest He consume them on the way. Why? They are a stiff-necked people. And kids, that means that they are stubborn. They like to sin. And God says, if I go among you, if my presence goes among you, I will consume you. Now to be sure, the angel whom God promises to lead Israel is the angel of his presence. And you read about him in chapter 14 of Exodus and chapter 23. Uh, This is an example where you see the pre-incarnate Christ. And kids, that means that uh, this is Christ before he had a body and soul uh, appearing in a special way among the people of God. So this is the same one, as God says, um, who has God's name in him and can pardon, that is, forgive transgressions. But the way God speaks here is to suggest that the angel only leads them and he will not dwell among them. The distance of God from his people is illustrated vividly as Moses meets with God only outside of the camp according to verses 7 and following. This is not the tabernacle, of course, because it's not been constructed yet. But it, it is a tent of meeting. It is a provisional place at which God meets Moses face to face. But the situation is a reminder of the people's status before God. Their sin has created this uncomfortable distance between them and God. So the text says, Moses pitched the tent outside the camp, far off from the camp. Remember this language. After the people of Israel hear the Ten Commandments, what did they say? Oh God, we feel so close to you now that you've given us your law. No, not at all. They stand far off from God and say, Moses, you talk to God, not us. Because we feel like we're going to be destroyed. Now God is the one standing far off from his people outside of the camp. Well, how do the people respond to this? How do they respond hearing that they get to go to the promised land, but God will not dwell among them? Well, they're completely devastated, and they mourn. Literally, when the people hear this evil, they mourn and take off their ornaments, that is their jewelry, according to God's word. And on their journey to the promised land, they continue to strip themselves of this jewelry. Therefore, the stripping of this jewelry was a sign of mourning, and more importantly, it was a sign of repentance. Their punishment and distance of God convicted them of their treachery. And that's a good thing, to be convicted of one's sin. Further, the people's respect shown to Moses as he met with God in the tent demonstrates a changed heart, a repentant heart. So when God would descend in the pillar of cloud at the tent, the people would worship at their tent doors, honoring God. So now we can say the people are in their proper place. They didn't call the shots and worship now. God did. 
They kept their place before the holiness of God. And so there was no problem of the golden calf and there's no problem of human intervention here in worship. There was no, oh God, we're so bored of worship, we're so sick of it, please entertain us. Give us something we can do. Help us to pay attention by doing something exciting. There's none of that. There was only repentance and respect for God. The people are humbled and they seek mediation from God through Christ. And that is a proper posture of worship, isn't it? And in fact, that continues throughout the ages to our own day. So you come to worship God this morning, you don't come here because you want to be entertained, you don't come here because you had a really great week and you're such a good Christian that you come to church on Sunday. No, you come because you seek mediation. You had another work or week where you didn't do so well and you sinned and you realize it as you hear the preaching of the law and you confess to God and you clear your conscience knowing that Christ is your mediator. Well, that was the people's position right here. They realize they've blown it. They're sinners. They seek mediation. Moses, at this time, is Israel's mediator who speaks to God face to face as a man speaks to his friend. That's a stunning remark. Moses speaks to God face to face. Now that doesn't mean that he speaks to him literally face to face because in verse 20, God says, no one can see my face and live. Rather, it means that Moses has a privileged relationship to God. He is God's appointed mediator. Indeed, according to Numbers chapter 12, uh, Aaron, Moses' brother, and his sister uh, Miriam challenge Moses' special privileged status and say, doesn't God speak through us? Why does he always have to speak through Moses? Well, God responds to them by saying, Moses is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, like face to face. I speak to him this way clearly, not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Now that doesn't mean that Moses saw God's essence. It means that he saw a visible appearance of God. That is what we call a theophany. Because of Moses' unique status, he could speak boldly and persistently to God about these problematic, sinful people, Israel. And that is exactly what he does according to verses 12 and following. In verse 12, Moses says to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you haven't let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Well, what happened to Moses? I mean, kids, do you remember Moses according to Exodus chapter 3? He's the biggest scaredy cat you've ever seen, right? God calls him, appears to him in a burning bush, says, Moses, leave my people out. And Moses is like, no. Send somebody else. I'm not going to do it. I'm too scared, Lord. I can't speak well. I'm not bold. But here he is, in this chapter, speaking to God very boldly, almost to the point where you think he's being reckless. I mean, how can he say to Yahweh, see, this is what you said to me, But the language in the original is very respectful and polite. Nonetheless, it's still bold. God had told Moses that he would send his angel before him. 
But Moses is asking about God's glorious presence. That is his concern here. He knows that his presence is essential for their travels. That is why Moses goes on to ask that God show him his ways, that he may find favor in his sight. We translate that word ways there, majesty or power. So really what Moses is asking very specifically here is that God's glorious presence would indeed attend these people. When God tells Moses that his presence will go with you, plural, and give you, singular, rest, Moses asks again that God's presence would go with them. That is, Moses here is pressing God for the assurance of his presence, not just for himself, but for his people. So it's not quite clear to Moses. God, are you saying it's for the people, you uh, plural, or is it for me, singular? That is why Moses says that God's presence with them makes them distinct from all people. To be distinct by God's presence is to be fully in God's favor. And there's a wonderful parallel here this morning. As you worship with God, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, His presence attends this place by the Holy Spirit. And you are marked out as God's people. You are distinct from all the world. Go out and drive the streets and see where people are today. They're not in churches ordinarily. You are distinct from all the other people of the world. But it's not because, again, you're good Christians. That is, you're righteous in yourself and so good that you're not playing golf right now. No, it's because you've been called by God's grace. You've been set apart. God has called you by His Word. And He's imputed the righteousness of Christ to you. That's why you're here, and that's why you are distinct. Same thing with God's people. Israel. Moses says, God, you understand this, don't you? In a polite way. That your people have to be distinct. Your presence has to be among them. So after Moses has interceded in this way for his people, God answers that he will be present with his people in the way Moses has asked. So Moses' boldness has paid off. But his intercession is effective only because God has chosen him to be his ordained servant, his mediator. Moses, however, seems to go too far when in verse 18 he asks to see God's glory. God, let me see your glory. Let's be straight about several things. First of all, Moses is not asking here for an individual private showing of God's glory or essence for the satisfaction of his own curiosity or for walking with God in a closer way. That's not what Moses is asking here. In fact, this wrong idea was articulated by the enthusiasts or the mystics of the Reformation who wanted a direct experience of God. That is, some wanted an unmediated personal viewing of God's essence. Same thing happens today. When people say they want a closer walk with God by seeing God's glory. And many times what people mean is that they want some unmediated experience of God. And that is just wrong and sinful and dangerous. You don't want, no one wants, an unmediated experience with God because, like the people are threatened here, they'll be extinguished. However, Moses does ask for some sort of unmediated uh, view of God. And this is denied by God. 
But let's be clear, he's asking this not for himself, but for the good of his people. He gets a little carried away here, but he's asking this for the good of his people. So God responds in verses 19 and following. I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. No one except Christ can see God's face. After all, Christ is God. Moses can't see God literally face to face. Moses will only see God's goodness and hear the proclamation of God's name, that is Yahweh. The goodness and the name of God means that Moses will understand God's actions of grace and mercy. So you see, what God is revealing to Moses here is God's attributes, not his visible essence. And the way in which God says this reveals God's freedom to make himself known according to his ways, not man's ways. It's never man's place to say, God, reveal yourself to me in the way that I wish to be uh, pleased. That's not how it happens. That's what the enthusiasts and the mystics and some say today. Oh God, show yourself to me in some unmediated way, some way that, that is pleasing to me. God says, no, I am the hidden God. I am the hidden God and I will reveal myself to you through my means ultimately through Jesus Christ, the preaching of His Word. That is, revealing God's attributes in these ways. Indeed, God tells Moses that He will allow him to see His back when He passes by him as Moses is hidden in a rock, the cleft of a rock, hidden by God's hands. Now kids, let me ask you something. Does God have a foot or a hand, or a face, or a back, or an arm? No. The scriptures make it clear that God does not have a body. So what God is saying to Moses here is that I am so wonderful, and so hard to understand, that I will speak to you in in, uh, baby talk. I will uh, tell you the way in which I will appear to you in a way that makes sense to you. And so Moses here will have only some limited experience of God's presence. But what will be clear are God's actions of mercy and grace. And so in the next chapter, chapter 35, I'm sorry, 34, when God passes by Moses, he reiterates his attributes of mercy and grace, and then he adds love and his power and his willingness to forgive sins while never changing his justice. This is what Moses was asking for. He was asking for the assurance of God's people. And you have to remember that that is the issue. God is outside the camp. He's far away from the people. He's standing far off from His people. And Moses is a good mediator. says, God, you need to be close to your people. I know that you've saved them ultimately. They're going into the promised land. But they need assurance of their sins. And that is why God, or rather Moses asks to know God's ways, and even to see His glory. It's not for His own good. It's for the good of His people. So through Moses, the people of God would be assured of God's salvation. Then they would renew the Mosaic Covenant, which had been broken 
as they worshipped the golden calf. Now remember the story in Exodus chapter 32. What happens when Moses comes down the mountain with the tablets and he sees a golden calf? Kids, do you remember what happens? Does Moses say, All right! No. He smashes the tablets with the Ten Commandments on them, doesn't he? Now, is Moses just a hothead? Is that why he does it? No. He's saying something very powerfully by smashing those tablets. He's saying, You have broken the Mosaic Covenant. You have broken the covenant with God. God entered into a relationship with you through this covenant, and you blew it. God has loved you, He's been good to you, but you sinned against Him. And He smashes the tablets. So you've broken the covenant. So you see, that's Moses' burden here, is to see that covenant renewed, which happens next week. We hear chapter 34. Therefore, in summary, you can see that Israel was simultaneously justified and wicked. At the same time, Israel was justified, they are wicked. While God had promised to preserve them, He was yet at odds with them because of their sin. But the scriptures here give you a peek behind the scenes, as it were. Because of Moses' mediation, his constant and bold intercession, God promises his special, glorious presence to be among his people. This means that God forgives his people. Remember, God had said, I won't go among you. I'll destroy you. But now because of Moses' mediation, says, okay, now I will go among you. And this gives them what? Assurance of God's favor. Peace of conscience. And in the context of the entire Bible, this speaks of Christ's bold intercession on your behalf, not only to justify you, but to sanctify you. Through faith in Christ, by God's grace in Christ, you are justified. God does not hold your sins against you, and God has imputed the righteousness of Christ to you. You are saved eternally because of God's grace and mercy, just as God reveals those attributes to Moses. Nevertheless, you are also wicked. You continue to sin. As we said in the beginning, Christian life is really, really frustrating because you sin and you blow it and you just don't do well at all. But, this does not change your justification. But, on the other hand, it can create a sense of guilt in you and the feeling of a loss of the full uh, favor of God. So recall that Paul says in Romans, or rather, Ephesians chapter 4, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So you can grieve the Holy Spirit. You can grieve God. And God's fatherly displeasure is a reality according to Isaiah 67 and Psalm 51. So kids, just like you can displease your father, and you can for a time, knowing full well that he loves you and will not reject you, you can for a time experience his displeasure. And the scriptures are very clear. Our own canons of Dort say this in the last head of doctrine, that you can experience the displeasure of God. That is, a receding of 
the sense of his favor to your mind as you rebel against him. Now to be restored to the full sense of God's favor is to repent, as Israel did, casting off the jewelry. To be sorry for your sins and to confess them. But there's more. It is to turn to the Father's true and final mediator, Jesus Christ, who intercedes for you. For Christ would sell for nothing less than the full restoration of God's people. So let's be honest. There are times in which you just rebel against God. You want to do your own thing. You know fully well God has has said to do this and not to do this. But you're like Paul in Romans chapter 7. You do the things you know you shouldn't do and you don't do the things you know you should do. And when you're in active rebellion against God and refuse to repent of your sins, it's possible to feel this distance from God. But brothers and sisters, the scriptures say to you, that you are to repent of your sins. And repentance is this process God uses to restore you. In other words, another perspective is God wants to restore you through Christ fully. And He will do that in your life. He will persevere you to the end. You won't be lost in your sins. You'll have this little time of rebellion, but God by His Spirit will cause you to overcome it. And that's because of Christ's constant mediation. You confess that you should die eternally for your sins. Even your daily sins which pale in comparison to worshipping the golden calf. God's justice has not changed. But because of Christ, you are safe despite your daily sins. Therefore, the justified and wicked person will find comfort in Christ alone not in any program of repentance alone. That's what the devil would like you to think. Oh, I've been so bad. God's angry with me. Either he doesn't love me, which we never say, he always loves you. Either he doesn't love me, or I can just try my own program of change, and then things will be... No. Uh Uh-uh. You're to be like Israel. You repent of your sins, you're sorry for them, and you look to Christ. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means you will not be punished eternally for your sin because of your identification with Christ. Get it straight. You will not be punished eternally for your sins. Indeed, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That means that the Holy Spirit now rules you rather than the power of sin and death. Outside of Christ the Mediator... The law does condemn because it says do this and live. And what do you do? You don't do it. But through faith in Christ, you are assured of God's eternal favor because Christ obeyed the law in your place. That is why Paul says in verses 3 and following of Romans 8, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Christ's coming in the likeness of sinful flesh and condemning sin in the flesh means that Christ came as a real human being in the sphere of human weakness, not only to obey the law, but to die on the cross and to destroy the power of sin over you. 
This is to what Moses pointed, but could not do. Jesus Christ came as true man and true God. He could actually see God's face or glory, because He's God Himself. And He could offer His life as an eternal sacrifice for His people. The end of Christ's work, according to Paul, is that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in you, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to whom? The Spirit. Yes, you, while justified, are still wicked and will continue to sin. But God will sanctify you. He will lead you by the Holy Spirit. That is a promise from the Scriptures. As you have true faith in Christ, even in your times of rebellion, God will turn your heart back to Him. All of this is a direct benefit of the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, who has given you His Spirit. Hearing this Gospel is that which motivates you to walk by the Spirit. Because of Christ's mediation, your sins are forgiven. Therefore, when you do sin, you can be sorry for your sins and repent of your sins by turning to Christ, your mediator, who constantly and persistently and boldly speaks to the Father on your behalf. In conclusion, the story here in Exodus chapter 33 demonstrates that the conviction of sin is a good thing. As Christians, you should be sorry for your sin. You should never be happy that you're sinning, thinking that you have some sort of freedom. You don't. You sin. Remaining sin can and is often frustrating, but it is a part of your journey as pilgrims in this life. But God has not left you as orphans who must struggle along by yourself. He has proclaimed that you are justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. Christ is the Lamb of God crucified in your place so that you are not under the condemnation of God. Now He has given you His Spirit by whom you walk with a clear conscience as you constantly confess your sins to Him and turn to Him now and forevermore. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen.